Welcome, friends and listeners, to the next episode of Aftermath. Be sure to follow us on social media for updates, decrees from the Shadow Council, and important dates in Aftermath history. You can find us on Twitter at Group Fire Pit, on Instagram at Fire Pit Creative Group Official, on Facebook at facebook.com slash firepitcreativegroup, and on YouTube at Fire Pit Creative Group. You can also email us at firepitcreativegroup at gmail.com. Without further ado, here's the next episode. Enjoy! Fire Pit Creative Group presents Aftermath, Season 1.5, Episode 1, Anthem. The stone and the circle, and the center and the silence, always come alone, are silent and central, and round as a stone. Lesson in Natural History by Theodore Spencer Benjamin rode the small boat for what felt like an hour, maybe less, maybe more. He wasn't tired. His simulacrum, his robot body, didn't need rest. Not that he noticed, anyway. He just didn't feel like rowing anymore. He lay on his back, staring at the sky until the stars were gone. Robotic pupils adjusted, fine-tuning his vision autonomically, watching plumes of gray smoke he couldn't smell rise overhead. He focused on brown particulate in the air, a fine, ever-present dust he couldn't feel. He saw the Brooklyn Bridge in the distance and was consoled knowing that massive structure, as symbolic as it was useful, had stood the test of time. It weathered the elements, was repaired, made stronger, not unlike the general himself. Fuel-guzzling fairies moved in the distance. Castro froze for a moment, enhanced robotic ears pinpointing the boat's movement and direction. He relaxed as the vessels moved away from his boat. The rockheads and other mutants must not have spied his boat, or were preoccupied scavenging, single-mindedly warring with each other. He came ashore somewhere south of Brooklyn Heights. He was pleased to find he hadn't escaped one enemy stronghold, only to be distracted by another. He crawled overboard, stood in the surf, and dragged the boat to shore. At first glance, Castro didn't recognize the area. It was overgrown with lush flora, dense browns and muted greens. If Dr. Bath was here, he would surely identify the growth as a positive sign of vegetation. But Bath wasn't here, nor was Major McGillicuddy. Their simulacra were hidden in the river below him, at the north of Interstate 478, 
their human bodies safe in the Phoenix Project. Thinking about this was a chilling reminder that the General's own disabled body was floating in the coffin-like transference module in the underground laboratory. He had convinced engineer Donna Chang to send his consciousness through the green stream and into his simulacrum. Castro half expected Project Administrator Danielle Devenu or Chief Surgeon Miral Ganaya to brace Chang for sending him in solo. Sitting on the shore as the sun came up that morning, the General looked across a vacant field toward the Brooklyn Bridge, the Manhattan Bridge beyond that. He had at least four miles to cover, which he was confident he could do in a little over an hour. But, while Castro knew the area well, he had little idea what level of structural devastation, or human mutation, obstructed his path. He thought back to the Magistrate and La Signa Bell. He thought about the marauders who fought for Silvio Jones. But he did not think long about them. He was there to get answers, to discover what happened to the world he once knew, not engage in pointless conflict with every martyr or madman challenging others for mere survival. your newly installed Benevolent Phoenix Council, formerly known as the Shadow Council. We have heard your complaints and your pleas for relief, and convened to address long-standing disputes between those of different stations in the project and the offspring of the project's founders. We value the citizens of the Phoenix Project and believe everyone is deserving of dignity and fair and free access to all non-administrative or dangerous areas and the right to cohabitate with those of their station without permission from the central processor. Further, the industrial area in C block, referred to as the squalor, shall no longer be referred to in this way. Those known to Phoenix Law Division as dissidents will not be labeled as such unless brought before your Phoenix Council. Blocks A and B will be open for access to all citizens in good standing during mornings and afternoons, and common areas shall be available to all citizens on a first-come, first-served basis. We hope these minor revisions to the ordinances and codes governing the citizens of our society will make for a more peaceful and productive association. Please be advised, all other laws, ordinances, and rules of the Council and Central Processor will for the safety of citizens and preservation of the project, be strictly enforced. This includes prohibitions against contraband in noticed blocks and crawls. Thank you for your attention. Have a productive day. Harumi Gale stood behind the crowd gathered in the common area. Words in brilliant red scrolled across flickering LED screens overhead barely keeping up with the electronic voice announcing the unanimous decisions of the newly branded Phoenix Council. Harumi was impressed. The message was cautiously designed to placate those from the lower levels who had recently been terrorized without cause by rogue officers of the law division. The council wasn't worried that older, less important members of the underground society would be moved by Maricela Santiago and the so-called dissidents. No. Harumi understood the central processor. The council couldn't reach consensus on what to do if younger citizens, people like herself and her mentor, Dr. John Bath, were moved to turn against the authority of the council. 
In her heart, Harumi knew she had already turned against the Phoenix Project and what it stood for. Pushing John in the same direction was a challenge that required slow, deliberate subterfuge. John had to be radicalized on his own terms. Nothing else would suffice. In the dim corridor, Harumi watched citizens from the A, B, and C blocks file out into the hall. Some spoke candidly about the recent announcement. Others not as much, murmuring flatly. Harumi turned to see Gabriel Princip winding his way through the crowd. Princip was young and handsome, with short reddish-brown hair over angular features. He had a confidence Harumi rarely saw from someone her own age. There was something about him that reminded her of... Well, Dr. Bath. Maybe, she thought, when John was younger. You're late, Harumi told Gabriel as he approached. Couldn't be helped. Princip nodded at the common area. I assume you saw the announcement? Harumi barely nodded. Yeah, well, it was my role to upload it to all channels, Gabriel explained. A reminder that he worked in the law enforcement division's information systems and analysis section and he was not to be trusted blindly. Here. Gabriel reached into his uniform. He produced John Bass' brown and blue notebooks. It's critical that you get these back into his quarters as soon as possible. Harumi took the well-worn journals. That may not be easy. Sometimes he's at the infirmary, but when he's not there, he's at his compartment. Princip arched an eyebrow. The infirmary? Oh, yes, of course. Helms' girlfriend. How is she? She lost the child. Harumi spoke flatly, indifferent. Then, her features softened. She's still in a coma. Unresponsive. Gabriel nodded. Then that's our... I mean, that's when you have to do it. When Bath's there. Fine. But John's no fool. I know the security combination to his quarters. But after all this... She waved her hands toward the corridor filled with passers-by. Eventually, he'll change the code. Or, once he sees someone has read these, his suspicion will only increase. Gabriel smiled. Perfect. He leaned a little too close for Harumi's comfort. The sooner Bath drops this wild notion of finding a hatchway out of this place, the better. Gabriel glanced over his shoulder, then back at Harumi. Their eyes met. Princip nodded, then turned to leave. We're gaslighting him, Harumi spoke to Princip's back. That's a problem for you? Gabriel looked back at Harumi, his expression suggesting she had a history of manipulating her professor and mentor. Harumi Gale steeled her diminutive frame. She walked confidently up to the taller, but not necessarily more impressive man. You presume much about my relationship with Dr. Bath. And you say little about your relationship with the project administrator. A look of surprise fell over Gabriel. His hands fell to his sides. How did you... Harumi waved a slender finger between them. I accept my actions as a means to an end that I can live with. But trusting you, Harumi walked past the law division officer, is something altogether different, and that must be earned. Castro climbed through obsidian black, foam, and chaff-filled water, 
slashing thorn bushes with the machete he stole from a mutant on Governor's Island. He stomped over dense algae, ascended the seawall, prying back colored moss, coffee brown straw, and shrubs. He walked from port to port to the clearing that was once recreational fields near Brooklyn Heights. The machete hovered over knee-high grass scattered in patches. The general remembered rows of wheat and grain replenishing itself in good times, drying into weeds and dying in hard times. Ahead, Benjamin spied the field of gray-green underbrush and vegetation scattered with rubbish. He moved slowly, counting steel, stone, and rotting plywood graves. There must be hundreds, thousands of them, he thought. Markers with no names. He wondered if those buried suffered the destruction that befell New York, victims of fallout and disease. Or were they ones who paid the cost in bitter battles between brutal factions of mutants and lunatics? Castro kept his gaze in the direction of the Brooklyn Bridge. He wanted to get there before his consciousness was yanked from the green stream. He could store his simulacrum somewhere safe, then return later and meet up with Cuddy and Bath. What had once been Brooklyn Bridge Park was now a shantytown. Dozens of small forts built from scrap metal and wood. Makeshift huts constructed from broken brick and salvaged mortar, wire, and canvas. At the center of the park, a great glowing flame of mulch and refuse burned brightly. For a moment, Castro was transfixed. Then, he saw hunched figures moving between the tents. Some hauled trash onto the fire. Others huddled there for warmth. Castro squeezed the machete in his fist, then slipped the blade gently up his right sleeve. He could produce it at will if necessary. The general picked up his pace, stepping closer to the edge of the campground. He paused, about to call out to the nearest person, when a noise, faint at first, then screeching loud popped in his right oral sensor. A dull whinnying sound pierced his left ear. Benjamin touched the side of his head a few times, trying to activate his enhanced hearing. How or why he knew this would help, he was unsure. The familiar sound of an overhead aircraft hummed behind General Castro. He shifted, caught a glimpse of a round aerial floating overhead. A large, translucent blue steel tire spun towards Manhattan. It was followed closely by a much larger aircraft. What Castro remembered as a stealth drone, typically operated remotely, used by the military for surgical strikes or massive destruction with minimal risk to its operators. The round aircraft glided swiftly, spraying colorless exhaust. It dove between skyscrapers. The drone followed. Its sleek, sharp wings scraped buildings, shredding steel and glass as it descended. Both aircraft disappeared from the city, but the outcome was unmistakable. Clouds of smoke billowed between scattered, leaning structures somewhere near Wall Street. My God. From his unoccluded ear, he heard footsteps nearby. When Castro turned, he saw a wall of men and women, the inhabitants of the tent village. No, General Castro. A petite, elderly woman with a kind but ruddy face approached. God left this city long ago. Benjamin swung to face the woman tried to recognize her. You... you know me? Castro felt the machete handle in his palm. 
He hoped he wouldn't have to use it. The old woman nodded. Castro gazed blankly at the sea of people, worldly but empty, sad faces, defeated men and tired women. Somehow he knew they posed no threat. The wizened old woman's lips turned up, but barely, as if she couldn't quite form a smile. It's all right. We won't harm you. Castro nodded, relieved. He glanced at Manhattan. Plumes of smoke rose visibly from green spaces, rooftops, as if they had always been there. Men and women clustered around the general, murmuring to themselves, each other. They seemed human enough. Here. The woman before Benjamin held out a wrinkled hand. Aftermath, a fire pit creative group production, based on a story created by Rhett Davis, with characters created by Warren Davis, Willem DeGrief, and Cole Hoopengarner. Written by Warren Davis, with Willem DeGrief and Cole Hoopengarner. Narrated and produced by Cole Hoopengarner, with Warren Davis. Music composed by Warren Davis, and video production by Willem DeGrief. Links for the sound effects used in Aftermath can be found in each episode's description. Aftermath and its story and characters are copyright 2019 by Firepit Creative Group.